Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. A one, two, three, four. Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Hi guys, I'm Amy Wright, and today I'll be sharing a fascinating conversation that I recently had with Reverend Payton of Reverend Payton's Big Damn Band, possibly one of the best live bands I've ever seen in the last decade. Their shows are absolutely action-packed. I think the last time that I saw them, Breezy, the consummate washboard player, actually set her washboard on fire while playing it, so that should give you an idea of where they're coming from. They just released a new album called Dance Songs for Hard Times, an album they said was written by Candlelight and then recorded using the best technology available in the 1950s. You gotta love that. I think you're gonna learn a lot by eavesdropping on this one, so let's dig in. You're listening to Insights by Diddy TV. How's it going? How are y'all doing today? Oh, we're doing awesome down here. And how are you guys doing? We're doing really, really, really good. Yeah, things are, are, are it's been a fantastic day. Uh, we found out this morning that uh, uh, according to the Billboard charts, we have the number one blues record in the world. Oh my God, you rock. You rock, you have to be <laughs> excited about that. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty cool. So it, it, we, we were hoping that might happen. We, we've been uh, number one on, on iTunes and Tidal and Amazon for the last week. So we thought that was a pretty good sign that maybe the billboard chart might uh, come through, and it, it has. So now we're we're uh, we're officially number one on on the on the Billboard Blues album chart as well. So how does that feel, just in general? How does that feel? Well, it's something we've been working for for a long time. You know, it wasn't uh, it wasn't just like an overnight thing. We've been number two a handful of times. <laughs> But uh, two's pretty good uh, though. Two's not bad. No, but. two's not bad. Two's not bad. But it 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 feels pretty cool to to get that number one. And, and honestly, you know what? This is going to sound crazy, but I'm I'm glad it wasn't those other records. I'm glad it was this one because this one really deserves it. This what? one we've we've like are living up to our potential. You know, I've always felt that way. Like like it, it when we were younger, we had a ton of potential, and I don't know if we lived up to it entirely. But we are on our recorded stuff live. We always have, you know. Right. But uh, but I think uh, I think on on record now, I think that we are are a hundred percent living up to our potential on this record. And it's dance songs for hard times. That's right, dance songs for hard times. Well, we're going to get to the album because I've been listening to it, and of course, it's just it's full of all the energy that you guys have. You know, you bring all of that just absolute happiness and exuberance to everything you do. And I, I actually, I read, this was kind of an interesting comment that you made that you often like to cover sad topics with happy music. And I, I just thought yeah, that that well, was a really interesting comment. Yeah. I, I think, uh, I know this may sound nuts, but I, I, I like when 
uh, when songs sound like they're they're happy, but they're they're really sad. And I, if you go back through our entire catalog, uh, with a, a, a few exceptions, uh, the vast majority of our catalog is is actually very heavy. Uh, the it, when you get down to it, like lyrically and like what the songs are about. But at the same time, I don't think people would uh, describe our music that way. Which is interesting, but I, but you know, this is actually something that is is the uh, is sort of kind of part of the American tradition in all of Roots music, right? I mean, you know, how many uh, how many old blues songs or 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 even like bluegrass or or country or or you name it are really twisted about murder and all kinds of terrible things, but they don't always necessarily sound that way. You know, sometimes they they sound like they're it's a it's a happy dance song, so. When, when we were, were sort of like putting together this record and deciding what songs were going to be on it out of all the songs that I had written, I, I, I had the working title of, of Dance Songs for Hard Times because it just sort of felt like what you know, I'd been doing, right? And uh, when, it, when the thing was all completely said and done, I was like, well, this has been the working title. Why, why don't we just call it this? That's what this is. That's what this record's been from the start. So let's just call it what it is. Let's call it Dance Songs for Hard Times. So so that's why we went with that title. Well, I love the title, and it is kind of a culmination, like you said, of everything you guys have been doing for a while. And I kind of wanted to step back for a second and go back to when you were a kid, because mm-hmm. everyone likes to hear how someone got started in music. Did, were you playing an instrument early as a kid, or were you... Yeah, yeah. So I, I tell you, <laughs> this is kind of nuts, but when I, was, when I was a kid, I was 12 years old, and my dad says, we're going to go and get a guitar. We're going to go buy a guitar. What kind of guitar? And he just said, we're going to go buy a guitar. And I said, this is like, I mean, I, I, I must have been some kind of smartass, because I, I, I remember clearly saying you don't know how to play and we can't afford a guitar. <laughs> and, and he said, I do know how to play man. I can't afford a guitar. So we're going to go get it. So we went to uh, this shop and bought, I think the cheapest instrument in there. It was a K uh, Strat copy. So an electric guitar with no amp. All right. And we bring this thing home and I, I don't think we had a case for it. Nothing, you know, just they gave us some flat picks with it. And so we go home and I'm, I'm, he sits down with this, this, this K, you know, this cheap, just junky, terrible guitar. The strings were about that high up off the fretboard, you know, you, you about needed vice grips to, to fret the thing. And he starts in playing all these songs, you know, like songs from the sixties. He's playing little blues runs, all kinds of stuff. He, he played all kinds of these things. And I, I had never heard him play before. Like music was always big at our house, you know, and music's big in, 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 in America. More, it's, it's bigger than people realize. You're, the first thing you hear when you're a baby is your mom singing to you. You're, there's, there's music in school. There's, for those of us that went to, grow up going to church, there's music all in church. You're singing all the time. There's music at the grocery store when you're going to buy groceries. There's music everywhere. And it's not like that in other countries. You know, we've played in 38 countries. I can tell you it's not that way. We have a very musical culture here. But my, my dad had never, ever played the guitar in front of me. And I found out that he had sold his instruments when I was born because he needed the cash. And so he had, now we've got this K and he's banging away on these just, you know, these old 60s, 50s songs mainly, you know, just these old songs. And, and I was just floored by it. 
And I, I instantly was was just thought, you've got to teach me how to do this, you know. So he taught, he started teaching me chords and and uh, just a li- just what little bit he knew, you know, like the, like like songs like Wipeout and and uh, you know things like that, you know, just like the, the the almost like intro to guitar stuff, you know. So I just became obsessed with it right then and there. And he said, if you practice, we'll get an amp. So like two months later, we got a, a gorilla amp. And anybody that knows anything about guitars will tell you that probably those those that era of K, the K state of the art, the Strat Copy K, plugged into a tiny gorilla amp is probably the worst combination <laughs> of <laughs> of instruments that anyone ever ever come across. That's just so, so awesome. It was just the cheapest setup, but yeah. I wore it out. I mean, I absolutely wore it out. And so I'm 12 when I start. By 13, I, I was given guitar lessons. I was just obsessed with it. I never put it down. I still haven't. Like, I'm still obsessed with it, you know? And, you know, here's here's kind of a funny story. So everybody that, that plays guitar, especially when you're young, you get a guitar, then you sell that guitar, you put the money toward your next one, that hopefully is a better one, right? So that's what I did. My very first guitar I sold to a guy, and I'd saved up money, and I got myself a little better one, and then a little better one over time, you know? But that very first K, uh, the fella I sold it to, he kept it. And a couple years ago, he contacted me and he said, I, I want to I get this back to you. Aww. And he didn't, he didn't want any money for it. He just wanted to give it to me. He said that he, he felt like I should have it. And it was my first guitar. And, and I gave it to my dad for Father's Day. And so it was, it was pretty cool. It was pretty cool. Wow, that, that that was nice of him to actually think about that and how much it meant to you to get the guitar back. Um, yeah, when I gave it to my dad, he was confused. He said, this looks just like it. And I said, no, Dad, this is it. This isn't one like it. This is the guitar. And he was, he was, he was pretty, pretty blown away by it. It was, it was pretty special. So when you were in high school, were you in a band then? Or were you playing yeah, solo I gigs? Yeah, so I was in a band. I started... Uh, you know, I was I was playing lead guitar for for b- bands uh, of adults when I was in you know like like junior high. By the time I got into high school, uh, I was doing all kinds of stuff. Uh, I had a, a a ton of like you know I was I was doing I had a ton of students I'm doing guitar lessons with. I've got um, uh, a handful of bands we're doing like what they used to call the animal circuit. You know, you go play the Lions Club, the Elks, and things like that. And uh, uh, we were doing uh, just any anything we could, you know, anything we could. It was uh, uh, I, I stayed real busy in high school playing music. But a crazy thing happened when when I was eighteen, and it was right after I graduated. I started having a little bit of problems, but like right like the week after I graduated, I'll never forget it. I had this this issue with my hands where my, it wasn't just pain. It was like they didn't work, mm. you know. They just didn't want to work, and as, particularly in my pointer fingers. So I was, uh, uh, you know, I, I took a little bit of time off hoping it would heal. It didn't. I started going to doctors and things, and, I, and you know, one doctor said, he's like, hey, son, find you something else to do. Wow. You know, there's nothing we can do about this. Was it yeah, carpal was tunnel or something like that? Like a carpal well, tunnel? What, what it actually was, I, I ended up finding a doctor. So I never really gave up. But it was a year and a half where I couldn't play. So I spent a year and a half not being able to play the guitar. And I finally found a doctor and he said, I think I know exactly what is wrong with you. 
But the only way to know for certain is I have to, I have to cut your hands open and see. And he said, if I'm right, there's, you're going to have a bunch of cysts that have grown on your tendons and locked them up. And if I'm wrong, I'm going to cut away half your tendon and see if that fixes you. So I was desperate. So I was like, whatever, do what you got to do, you know, whatever it takes. But he, he ended up cutting my hand open and, and he said, I was right. And he, and he ended up cutting away. And I, I'm not sure if you, if you can see on the video, I've got this scar right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can see it mm-hmm. kind of. It runs all the way down there into the middle of my hand. And I have another one that matches sort of similarly. Uh, but it's, uh, it, it was devastating at the time, you know. I mean, sure. I'm, I really had always planned on, on being a, a professional musician. And in that time, I, I couldn't play enough. to. I had to let all my students go at the time. I had to stop playing in all the bands I, I was playing with. Uh, I had to stop everything and try to decide what else I was going to do with my life, which I didn't know exactly what that would even be. Um, so when I started being able to play again, you know, it kind of took a minute to get my confidence back. You know, it uh, it wasn't it wasn't instant. Um, but I have uh, I have super flexible hands, and for people listening on the podcast, they're they're uh, they're not going to be able to see this, but maybe your reaction. Well, like, see oh that my right God! There. <laughs> yeah. For those of you who are just listening, this is crazy. He can bend his thumb all the way back. <laughs> and that, all my fingers do it. And you have long fingers, which is helpful when you play guitar. Well, so it's not just long. Like, yeah, they're just look how look how wide I can open my hand. Yeah, that's it's crazy. Like a, it looks. It doesn't look like a human hand. It does not. And uh, it's very strange. It almost looks like it looks like a frog or something. <laughs> Um, but it's that it's actually that flexibility that is also the reason I had problems with my hands. So mm. I've learned to deal with it over the years. I've had to um, kind of, uh, you know, uh, I even eat I even eat like a diet to sort of keep, you know, my my uh, my tendons and things flexible. I, I, I'm on I'm on like the hyper flexibility spectrum is what they say. And people that are right on the line can be super flexible and do superhuman things. But if you're over the line, it can be really problematic. You can have pain, you can have injuries, you can have all kinds of problems that happen. So I, I try to keep my collagen level up and, and I, I try to do things to, to keep my, my hands healthy so that I don't have to have any more surgeries and can sort of use it like a superpower rather than a, you know, a disability. Well, so when you got through this period and you, had your hand fixed and you come back and you're playing guitar. Were you more appreciative than ever that you could play guitar? Oh yeah, absolutely. And I I was, uh, you know, I, I still, I I know now, I mean, it, it, it's still in the back of my head that it it could be tomorrow that I wake up and, and my hands don't work. You know, I know that that's a possibility always, you know, it's just uh, nothing, nothing is ever set in stone. And it was when when it first happened to me, it completely took me by surprise, and I had I had no idea that it was going to be uh, uh, the road I was going to have to travel down. So, um, at the beginning of uh, last year, I actually broke my thumb. We were playing on the Delbert McClinton cruise, and my thumb got slammed in one of those big cruise ship doors. Yikes. So we started off to 2020. You know, I couldn't play for six to eight weeks. And it was actually this thumb here, the one that oh. that I showed you. That's, yeah. uh, and, and, and 
And this is it healthy, you know, broken. It can't do this. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, even that was scary because, you know, you never know, you know, playing, being a guitar player is kind of like, you know, being an athlete. It's just an athlete with your hands, you know? So like without your hands, you, you can't, you can't do it. And, um, it was, it was, it was tough. It kind of reminded me back, you know, when I was 18, I couldn't play. It was, it was a very similar feeling. And, so I, you know, it just, it's a constant reminder. I think sometimes life does that to you. It reminds you that, that, you know, you better not take it for granted because at any moment that could be it. That is so true, man. It's uh, this past year, I think has made everybody appreciate the fact that they can get in their car and go someplace. Even things we just yeah. took for granted. We weren't thinking Absolutely. about the fact that, Hey, normally I can just go an hour away and stay there. Now I'm kind of stuck. Every single thing this yeah. year, every single thing that, that we thought we, uh, we, you know, I mean, every, I mean, just spending time with family, you know, I mean, how, 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 how often we take that for granted, you know, complain about, uh, about that or complain about holidays, you know, it, it, it uh, makes me not never want to complain about damn near anything ever again. <laughs> I am right there with you. I mean, I it threw me for a loop, and I'm so glad that we're coming out of this whole thing. But it was yeah. quite quite the year, and I think made most of us really appreciate all that we have: family, friends, uh, where we live. You you appreciate that even more because we had to be there for quite a while. Um, when did you yeah. when did you get really interested in roots music blues? I mean, when did that bug hit you? So, so my dad was always really into Johnny Winter, and then stuff like Johnny Winter, you know, uh, like Alvin Lee, uh, Rolling Stones, uh, CCR, uh, you know, a lot of like either either really sort of high energy rock and roll blues stuff or very blues influenced rock and roll. And when you sort of like, especially someone like Johnny Winter, Johnny Winter always gave props to everybody that, that influenced him. And he, you know, he remained friends with Muddy Waters throughout Muddy Waters entire life. And I think helped Muddy make arguably his best record ever. And when you, when you sort of get into that kind of stuff and you go, okay, well, who influenced Johnny Winter? Well, you get to Muddy Waters real quick. And then for Muddy Waters, you go back and and it doesn't take long for you to get to guys like Charlie Patton and Buck White and Mississippi John Hurt, Fred McDowell, and just, you know, a, a, a bunch of fellas like that right at the very earliest beginnings of, of blues music in this country. And when I heard that stuff, I it, it really, really fired me up, like more so than than the, you know, the, the urban, you know, uh, sort of just urban electric blues stuff, that pre-war stuff really just fired me up. And largely because, you know, I'm starting to play guitar. I'm a little kid. And, you know, when you learn how to play an instrument, it's like learning a new language. You know, everything's hard. You know, making an E chord on the guitar when you first are handed one seems like an impossible task. You're like, how am I ever going to do this? And then you hear someone like Robert Johnson or Charlie Patton literally playing two guitar parts at once. And that absolutely floored me. I, I It sounded like, you know, like, like magic, you know, like alchemy, mysticism or something, you know, it's like, how are they doing this? And it, I just absolutely was, have, have been obsessed with it. My whole, my, my whole, my whole life since I, I picked up a guitar and it, um, 
there was something else too about the way uh, the stories that, that's, that like Charlie Patton told, the stories that you know you heard from from uh, even Sunhouse or uh, uh, just Blind Willie Johnson, the stories you heard from from John Hurt. You know these the the stories that they told in their songs, like the the the, the life experience that they told in their songs, always kind of spoke to me because I, I I grew up a, a, a rural guy, you know, in the country. And there was something about, uh, you know, other rural people, you know, singing songs that uh, that really sort of it, it, it spoke to me, you know. And so it wasn't just the style. It was even the substance of it all, you know, really spoke to me. So when did you meet Breezy? I know it was pretty early on. So I, I told you I had my hand surgery. Mm-hmm. Uh, I met her one week after I had my hand surgery. I was 19 years old. So when she, when she, when she met me... I was still in uh, bandages on my hands. My hands were still wrapped up, both of them. And um, we we just we met through friends. Like people, uh, sometimes they they you know we we just met through friends. I I had a, a there were these two sisters, and we're still friends with them. But there's two sisters, and one of them was was, was uh, my age, and and one of my best friends, and the other one was Breezy's age, and uh, and and one of her best friends. And they always tried to to you know get us to to meet and and uh for whatever reason we didn't until then you know, I, we've known him we had known him for years before that when school and everything but um for whatever reason we didn't and then and when we did uh we've basically not been apart since well one of the yeah. things i love about your story is that here you are you're really into charlie Patton, and then you meet breezy and i read that breezy introduced you to jimbo mathis who I just That's interviewed right. a couple of weeks ago, who's amazing, as you well know. And oh, yeah. he had the album back in the 90s that he did uh, songs for Rosetta, I think it was. That's right, songs for Rosetta, you got it. Yeah, and uh, and that was about his caregiver when he was a child who happened to be Charlie Patton's daughter. And so, That's right. So this uh, nice full circle thing in your story, right? Yeah, well, I mean... I I thought that that uh, I I was you know like you know how it is when you when like you're you're a teenager and you, you know you're into music and like oh well you've probably never heard of the stuff I'm into you know that kind of thing right. <laughs> and, of course yeah well my favorite's this guy named Charlie Patton you know early early blues stuff you probably never heard of him and she's like oh yeah I know who Charlie Patton is have you ever heard of this record and she you know whips out songs for Rosetta and I had never heard that record and she plays this for me and it was awesome it's still this day one of my favorite records of all time uh I think you know one of the best blues records of the last 30 years at least and it just absolutely uh endeared me to to Breezy right quick you know and also too it set in motion a lot of stuff so I'm getting my hands back together you know I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to build my confidence playing again and Breezy actually had known Jimbo uh, a little bit. Uh, she had, they, they'd hung out. Uh, so she she knew Jimbo. And, and uh, you know, not too long after we'd been together, uh, we went to Clarksdale, Mississippi. And, and in, the, in the liner notes of Songs Rosette, it mentions the shoe store that Jimbo's family owned. And we went in there, you know, lo- like look, lo- looking for Jimbo, basically, and found his, his, his uncle, Guy, and hung out with, with Guy, 
uh, all day. Just went. He just took us around, and 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 we ended up uh, hanging out in and playing at this place called uh, Miss Sarah's Kitchen. And Sarah's Kitchen ended up being a, the the place in Clarksdale where we really first uh, really got going there. You know, Clarksdale, Mississippi, has become almost a home away from home. Place that like first really I think accepted our our us as a band and really understood the music we were making. Um, you know, we just uh, got back from the Juke Joint Festival in Clarksdale, Mississippi, playing, which was really exciting to be playing again. Uh, you know, it's these these shows are trickling back. It's not a it's not a stream. It's not a river. It's definitely a trickle. But it's it's nice to you know be be doing some stuff again. But but anyway, Clarksdale, Mississippi, ended up being this uh, this this very special place for us. Um, you know, it, it's uh, it, hard to explain, but. Um, Miss Sarah's was a magical place, and you know Miss Sarah's gone now. I, it's a, uh, uh, you know, she was a, a really, really great person. Uh, well, there's some such cool been. clubs in Clarksdale. You know, really cool places to see, but also all the history is out of this world. If you're into blues, oh, it's if you're if you're are, are into to blues history, if you are into American music history, Clarksdale, Mississippi is just absolutely the uh i mean it's 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 why the 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 club there is called ground zero i mean it's ground zero for the beginning of, of this stuff it, it radiated out from there in, in in a in a in a very tight circle in a way that's very hard to understand and so you look at a map maybe of where some of your favorite artists that you ever thought or knew they grew up within 50 miles of the place it's it's pretty incredible and you know when you talk about early blues and its influence on American music. It, it, people don't realize they think, Oh, well, yeah, rock and roll was influenced by blues, but they don't, they don't realize just how much blues music shaped all American music. I mean, I can go back and I can, you know, you, you go back to the early stuff and you can hear the, the roots of all kinds of, of early old time and bluegrass music right in the beginning of, of the beginnings of blues and, and if you can hear, I was so heavily influenced. There's a ton of stuff that we, we could talk all day, uh, music theory about how it, the influence was. But it, you don't have to be, uh, you know, big on music theory. You can hear it if you just go back and listen. You know, listen to Charlie Patton and, and listen to uh, some of the jug bands of the era. And then go and, and listen to old time stuff, bluegrass. You'll hear some of the same songs. You know, not not just uh, uh, like they, they, they borrowed this, that, or the other, but they literally are playing the same songs. Uh, Hank Sr., you know, I mean, think, imagine country music without Hank Sr., right? He learned to play the guitar from a disciple of Charlie Patton. Uh, I mean, it doesn't get much more uh, influential than that, right? Right. Uh, that alone. And then, of course, rock and roll. There is no such thing as rock and roll without blues music. Rock and roll is almost really a subgenre of of blues music very true hip-hop hip-hop you can't have hip-hop in this country without blues music there are so many uh so many different examples i, I could i could go on like lyrically you can uh cadence wise but one of my favorites is there's not a lot on record that we have but but early blues musicians would do a thing where they called trading dozens where they trade 12 bars and and they would just kind of it was almost like a, a rap battle they would make fun of each other 
you know, and in and, and the while they're playing guitar, just sort of part of uh, like trading rhymes. Right. They call it trading dozens. Well, now in hip hop, when they do a rap battle, it's trading eights because you trade eight bars instead of instead of 12. Well, I mean, it doesn't you don't have to be a, a, a you don't have, to have a degree in in music to see how just the direct correlation is right there, you know. Well, and everything started there, and then you can almost create a tree that shows this went from here to there and up and down and out. I mean, it's it's pretty Absolutely. incredible. It's everything, really incredible. Yeah. And, and so much radiated from Clarksdale. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, right down the road from Memphis. And um, so where did your sound come from? I know that uh, there's the blues and there's, you know, all the old-time blues, but everything you do is so highly charged. So where did that come from? I always say, you know, really at, at, at its core, what we are is is a country blues band. So a lot of times people are confused by that because they hear country and they think Waylon Jennings. But when I'm saying country blues, I mean, you know, early rural blues. That's where my heart has always been. That's where everything is born from. So I don't want to be just some kind of like museum piece throwback, though. You know, I, I want to be a band that is alive making music now. So what I do is sometimes I, I push, I, I try to push finger style blues guitar to places where it's, it's, I think at least it's never been before. And I've tried to do things with it that haven't been done because I, I think two things, one, you know, no one is ever going to do a Sunhouse song as good as Sunhouse. So like it, it's almost uh, futile to try. Right. And the other thing is, is I believe to make music that is alive and now you have to make music for people that are alive and, 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 and living now, you know? So, I, uh, I also am of the opinion, like R.L. Burnside said, that blues ain't nothing but dance music. So, you know, we, we sometimes forget that. Um, all American music at its core, at its origins, right? Old time, blues, bluegrass, country, rock and roll, jazz, swing, you name it. All American music at its core, at its origins, was dance music. People forget that now. You know, you sometimes you go see a show and, and um, people will say, oh, well, this is folk music. So we're going to sit in chairs like we're at the opera. But that is not how that music was intended to be enjoyed at its origins. And it's fine if people want to listen to that and, and enjoy it that way. But that that's not the intended purpose. The intended purpose of original American music was to be dance music. You got to remember that for particularly let's go back for, for blues. The, it was it was created. It, on on plantations where people work six and a half days a week, they only had one half day off. So Saturday night was the only night they, that there was anything ever going on. So there was a whole lot of emotion and energy and steam that need to be released right then and there. And uh, it was generally at, at, at its heart and core, a, a dance party that was taking place. You know, my grandmother grew up in Arkansas, and she said that every Saturday night they had a barn dance because everyone had Saturday night off, and mm-hmm. um, and it was just like you're saying. Everyone gathered. There was no television. There was none of that going on back then, and so you had to make your own fun, and everything was a big social event, but it was all around the music and the dancing, like you're saying. That's right. You know, those barn dances and things of that nature were way more common in rural America and we sort of, uh, sort of like remember it historically, you know, these were things that happened a lot, all the time. And 
You know, America at one time was something like 95% of agriculture, right? So when you are, are working in agriculture, you don't really get any real days off. You know, it has to be tended to constantly. So it's hard work. And but, you know, just because someone is a, is a farmer, it doesn't mean that they don't still love all of the same things that we love now in terms of music and dance and food and everything else that goes along with it. Right. And those barn dances and, and uh, on, on uh, in Charlie Patton's day at Dockery Farm, you know, it would have been the, 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 the juke house party. It was a very similar thing It's everybody came together in one location. And usually there was a traveling band that would show up and play and make music. And then people would dance and they would they, they would drink homemade liquor and they would maybe uh, you know have food that was brought by different people. And then they went back to work the next day. And that's exactly what the way it went. I think sometimes we forget that that uh, we, we you know, <laughs> see like. You know, on Twitter, people will argue about, you know, some lyrics, some hip hop lyrics. And I'm like, man, they ought to go back and read some lyrics to some blues songs from the 1920s and 30s. And uh, I they they would I think they would realize that there's not much new under the sun, really. No, there never is. Just you might say it a little bit differently, but it's it's still the same, the same themes, love and love lost and everything that goes with life. It's all been there for thousands of years and it's a good this is a good segue because dance songs for hard times last year was a bit of a hard time for everybody and were you writing these songs during last year or was it before last year when did the whole idea come really about? The, the the record came together about this time last year so it may be a little bit a little bit earlier uh when it for really first started to happen so at at the beginning of last year January of, of, of last year, I broke my thumb. So it already started the year off for us kind of on a down. And, uh, it, uh, we, you know, we have to take six, uh, eight weeks off. We get back to it. Uh, we do 12 shows and then everything stopped. We normally do 200 to 250 shows a year. So, you know, we did 12 last year. Um, when, when we did have to stop, when everything was, was being stopped, actually, March 3rd, I, I got sick. And it was, you know, at that point in time, you know, the, the coronavirus was in the news. People had been talking about it. I had actually been following it for longer than it had really been in, you know, like major news. I'd been paying attention. Um, now, I never imagined that that it was so widespread that, we would have already like we would be positive for this disease, but on March 11th was our last show. Uh, it was in Chicago, and we head home. And at that, by March 11th, everybody on our band and crew was sick, and Breezy was the sickest. Mm. She was really sick. So when we got home, we went to the hospital. Uh, she was really bad off, had a 104 temperature, and was just in bad shape. So we go to the hospital, and this is so, at this point, it's so new. Uh, they don't have tests. They're not really prepared. They don't, no one knows what's going to happen, really, right? It's all uh, just guesses and, and conjecture. So we go into the hospital. The doctor comes in. They put us in a special room that was, like, air-sealed and everything. So the doctor comes in. He says, look, 
everybody in this hospital right now is here because they think they've got the coronavirus. He said, it's kind of like they're, they're sort of freaking out. He said, I, the only person in this hospital I think has the coronavirus is her. And mm. he pointed to breathe. So he said, look, we can't really get tests right now. So we're going to test her for everything. So they did CT scans, they did x-rays, they did they test her for blood clots because because he said her lungs sounded like there was a blood clot there. Mm-hmm. And he tested her for every kind of flu and uh, strep throat, all the things they can test for. And he said, if all that stuff comes back negative, then we're going to assume that's what she's got because it really just kind of leaves that as the only thing. And she had, um, she ended up having a, a you know, bilateral pneumonia. She had scars on her lungs and she did test uh, positive for uh, those blood clots. Mm-hmm. So uh, what ended up, uh, you know, he, the doctor comes out and he says, look, normally I, I wouldn't send somebody so sick home, but I I don't know what to do. He said, I don't know if we're going to be inundated with elderly people dying. He said, I just don't know what this is. So he told me, he said, look, I'm going to send her home, but I don't want to. So if anything changes at all, come back. Well, we went home and, you know, we at that point, we weren't sure about quarantining like, I, I I mean, we knew to quarantine, obviously, but I didn't know how long after we were sick, we needed to stay in the house. So we just stayed in the house. We didn't leave. And it was uh, three weeks that, that she had a temperature of 102 off and on for three weeks. And just like she wasn't getting well. And people that live out in the country, out in rural America, know that, you know, it can you get a hard rain and the power goes out, you know. So there was one period of time where the power was out for like, three days or something. It was, it was, a uh, it was a mess. And I, I was fighting with the flooding and the power was out and, you know, we are just scared to even go buy food because we didn't want to spread this thing around. And it was just a, it was a very, very scary, dark time. I know it was for a lot of people, but it just, it was just, a, it felt really lonesome being out here in the woods and uh, being completely cut off. And at the time, we didn't have internet at, mm. at our place. Uh, internet didn't come until uh, May, I think. Uh, we got lucky. They, 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 there was some kind of rural grant where they put fiber optic cable down in, in some rural communities, and it just happened to be run right down our road. So we were able to get really nice internet in May, but we've lived here for 15 years without internet. So we had to drive to town to get our email to load on our phone you know so it was pretty cut off from the world it felt pretty lonesome and in that time that was when i i was uh really just these songs were kind of pouring out when it had to be psychologically such a shocker when you're playing 200 and something shows a year and then all of a sudden you're in a house by yourselves no internet and no touring no nothing And uh, I'm sure that that was just a really rough period to get through. But it sounds like you channeled that negative energy into some really amazing songs. I know that the album, a couple of the singles that you released, Too Cool to Dance and Ways and Means. I was watching the videos yesterday. Super fun videos, by the way. They both have really strong meanings. And Too Cool to Dance is, correct me if I'm wrong, but the message there is, when you think you're too cool to dance and then you can't dance anymore, that puts it in perspective. Well, yeah. It's kind of like about season the day, you know, like 
there's you know how often do we sort of not do something because we don't want to risk looking stupid or you know we we think oh well like that's not really what i would do because you know that's a i'm above that or, or i you know or whatever there's a, a million excuses and i uh you know this is kind of where that song was sort of born is from that space you know it's like uh it's uh it's about not wasting time not you know it's about seizing the day essentially well, in the video, it shows you guys dancing in front of a small trailer. And I just thought the setting was so, you know, spoke to the moment, which is everyone wants to get outside. They want to be free. And it was just such a great video. And then Ways and Means, it was, uh, is really about having the talent, right? But not mm-hmm. the necessarily the means to make your career take off. But you've got raw talent, so you've got to really work harder than everybody else would. That's right. That's exactly what that song's about. And it there's uh, in in music. I've been playing music long enough to know that the talent isn't enough most of the time. And you know, I don't want to point fingers or or uh, or anything, but I know a whole lot of musicians that get a lot of opportunities because they have a lot of family money or a very famous last name. And I have neither one of those things. So everything we've ever got has, has had to come by real honest. <laughs> and, you know, that song also, like, it, it's kind of why I wanted to do that, the video in, in a laundromat. And everyone's like, uh, I told the band, I said, our next video is going to be in a laundromat. They're like, well, that sounds very boring. I said, no, it's going to be awesome. Trust me. But, you know, people that know what the inside of a laundromat looks like, you know, uh, we'll understand that video, I think, on an even a deeper level than uh, those that may not. I think everyone can enjoy it. But if you know that what that is, I think you'll have a very a little deeper understanding. And it's that it's the idea is that the person standing next to you, you know, loading up the dryer at the laundromat, uh, they they could be working on something very special. They could have they, they, they could be doing something very interesting. Maybe they're working on a book. You know, maybe they're uh, maybe they're a painter. Maybe they're maybe they're a singer of songs, you know. Maybe they have a, a whole bunch of talent, and they're they're working toward that. You know, they're working towards something. That was kind of the idea in my brain: is that the, you 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 walk in a place like that, and you don't know sort of what what special talents lie beneath, you know. And it's um, you know, one of those things where in 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 my life, uh, it's uh, you know, I think people they don't realize that sometimes. You know, it's not just uh, the starting line isn't isn't zero for everybody. You know, some people don't don't start at zero. They start way ahead of zero. And then some people, they start way back, less than zero. And, uh, you know, it, it, life isn't fair in that way. And that's kind of what that song's about. You got it right on the money. Yeah, life isn't fair that way. Some Some people have to work a lot harder just to get to the same point that other people start at for example. And, uh, well, it's such a fun album. Where did you record it and who produced it? All right. So it was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee, and the producer's Vance Powell. And Vance is such a great, great guy. He is, uh, he's got a whole bunch of really amazing credits to his name, four five, six Grammys, something like that. He's worked with, uh, you know, Jack White. He's worked with Clutch. 
He's uh, he's got a he's got a Grammy for uh, being uh, uh, on Beyonce's Lemonade. Uh, he's he's worked with um, uh, Chris Stapleton, engineering uh, Chris Stapleton's records. Uh, you know, he's just a, a a really really talented fella. And when I was you know wanting to go in and, and make this record, I wanted to have an outside producer. I'd produced the last uh, like three records of ours. But I wanted someone, I wanted a different perspective, and I wanted to be able to just go to a microphone and sing and play these songs. You know, I didn't want to worry about it. I wanted to think about anything else. And I'd been talking to a handful of different producers. But what I loved about Vance was, first off, he, he, he was a, a fan. He'd, he'd seen us live before and understood what we were all about. And when I was talking to him about what, you know, his ideas would be for this thing, he said... He's like, you're a live band. Like, he's like, we got to capture that. He's like, I don't want to mess that up. He said, I want you to come in this, the studio, and not only do I want you to play it, but I want you to sing it live. And I, and I want to do it on eight-track analog tape, which is, you know, pretty amazing. And you know, not just analog tape, but he wanted to bring it down to eight tracks of analog tape. So that's what we did. And... I'm telling you, working with him was a, a super positive experience. It was just as comfortable as playing in, in my living room. You know, he just really made us feel comfortable so that we could just do what we do and, and just, you know, pony up to the microphones and, and play these songs. And it was, um, it was really special. I, I, I really, really just am proud of, of the finished product. Uh, you know, it was, it, it, it didn't require, you know, a, you never know. A producer could come in and go, okay, this didn't work. We're going to bring in uh, a, a horn section or we're going to put some electronic drums on here or we're going to, you know, you never know. You know, I mean, they, they, it, the, the sky's the limit. It, it can it can really mess things up. <laughs> no, that's, so, instead, that's so true. <laughs> but instead, Vance, just he he just let us show out what we do best. And he, he put that on display in a very crisp and clean and natural, warm, analog way. And uh, I just, uh, I, I couldn't be happier with the finished product and with, with actual process of making this record too. Well, it, it's, a, it's a great album. And what really does shine through is the energy, the kind of live energy that you guys are known for. It's really hard to capture that on an album. I mean, people who aren't musicians don't really understand this, but being live is different than being in the studio. And what I thought really came through was that incredible energy um, that you have in your live shows on the album. And so I think uh, let's go back to the beginning of the conversation we had where we talked about the fact that you just heard that you're number one on the Billboard chart. So I think that everyone is agreeing that this is a great album and uh, we wish you the best with this. And we can't wait to see you. You should come down to Memphis and see us at our studio. How about that? I would love that. I can't wait. I can't wait. And thank you all for, for helping get the word out by showing these videos and talking with me today. It, it really means a lot. It really does. Well, Rev, we love you. Say hi to Breezy for us. And can't wait to see you on the road touring. Thank you so much. I cannot wait. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Reverend Peyton of Reverend Peyton's Big Damn Band. Be sure to check out their latest album, Dance Songs for Hard Times, which you can find right now over at BigDamnBand.com. And as always, don't forget to visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content 
and to download your official Diddy TV app from your app store today. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.